Thanks, everyone. Good to see you, and uh, great to be here. The, uh, in order to get here today, I had to uh, uh, get a taxi out from town, and uh, as I got into the taxi, I whistled. I'll give you a demo. That's it. Yep. I don't actually like that song, but that's what was in my head. And the driver said, you're the first happy man I've met in five years. <laughs> Boy! Uh, well, I didn't know what to say, really, because I thought taxi drivers might meet all sorts of people, so it was a fairly interesting... I said, what, what's wrong? He said, oh, they work so hard, no one's happy. Look at them, look at them! And we looked up Bathurst Street, which was where I was. There were people walking everywhere. And he was right, there wasn't a happy person anywhere. And I suspect he wasn't too happy either. Well, just one of those things. How does he know I'm happy? Well, I am, actually. Uh, and that's just because of, I guess, personality and other things like that. Yesterday I wasn't so happy, to tell you the truth, but on the whole I am. Uh, and uh, as I say, it's just personality and so forth. But it's more than that. It's more than that. Uh, because uh, Jesus Christ said uh, that there would be happiness for those who follow him. And uh, I believe a, if I'm a happy person, it is uh, in large part because of what Jesus has done for me and uh, what I've found in following him. Of course, it's not always easy. And there have been moments of deep unhappiness. There have been moments of tears, uh, indeed. Uh, if you can imagine that, please don't even try. Uh, but there have been moments of tears and deep unhappiness. But on the whole, I'd have to say, no, when he laid his hand on me, uh, he did so for my good. And uh, I have found that uh, following in his way and walking in his way is a ha happy and a healthy way to live, too. Uh, uh, it's meant all sorts of positive things in my life. I trust it does for you too. If you're a follower of Jesus, if you're not a follower of Jesus, I commend to you the path of following Jesus as being one of the most uh, helpful and beneficial things that you can possibly uh, possibly do. Of course, you might be martyred at the age of 25, but that would be happy too, believe me. Uh, anyhow, it didn't happen to me. It may not happen to you either. Uh, we're going to talk about Jesus today under the headings of failed prophet or religious genius or, first of all, let's look at his name. Uh, his name was given to him, uh, of course, uh, by his parents. They said it came through an angel, a messenger from God, who gave him his name, Jesus. Now, I don't know what your name is, of course. Uh, you know that my name is Peter. Peter, we can identify the very moment when the word Peter was first invented for a name, and it was when Jesus gave one of his disciples the name Peter. Very few names can be identified to the precise moment. Uh, mine can. I'm very proud of it, actually. It means rock, not rockhead. Just rock. Solid, strong, foundation material. Rock. Because names have meanings, and your name probably has a meaning too. Uh, I don't know if you know that or not. Well, the name Jesus has a meaning. It was uh, Jesus in New Testament Greek is the same as Joshua in Old Testament Hebrew. So he's named after one of the great heroes of God's Old Testament, the first uh, of the two sections of the Bible, the Old Testament. Joshua, a great hero, great military and uh, political leader. And Jesus is named after him. And his name means really something like God saves, the Lord saves. It's got the idea of salvation, saviour, as part of Jesus the saviour is, is the way we can think about it. But you may say, no, that's not his whole name. Of course, he's known as Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ. Well, the word Christ is not really a name. It's more like a title. It's really, uh, well, Dr. Jensen, Doctor's a title, Jensen's a name, and it's more like a title, Jesus the Christ, is another way of putting it. Uh, you see, in the Old Testament, in the uh, first book of the Bible, first section of the Bible, there were various promises of God. 
And those promises of God in the end formed a sort of profile of a coming king, a coming lord and ruler of God's people, the Jews, Israel. Uh, and as that profile is formed, it's made up of different ways. It, it, it's not absolutely obvious, but as that profile is formed, uh, so there was a hope that that person would come. Uh, he'd have to be someone, a king in the line of King David, one of the greatest, in fact, the greatest of the old kings, uh, and he would be called a Messiah. Messiah, the Hebrew word, Christ, the Greek translation. So Jesus the Christ, in other words, Jesus the Messiah, the promised king and Lord, who the Lord sends to save his people, Jesus the Christ. The other day I was reading uh, an article uh, about Christianity and politics and the author of the article said something like this about Jesus. Uh, his name was, uh, what do we know for certain about him? What do we know for certain about him? All we can say with much certainty is that his name was Jesus, that he was a young Jew uh, and that he was crucified. Well, there have been people who doubted that he ever existed. So I don't know if we can say for certain. Uh, there have been people who doubted even that we know his name, Jesus. Uh, there have been people who doubted that he was young. And there are certainly people who doubt that he was crucified. So if we're going down the line of, are there doubts about this? Yes, there are doubts about all sorts of things. Everything to do with Jesus has been questioned and doubted, which is a very good thing indeed. It's a very good thing indeed. Because when questions are asked, when doubts are raised, when the question of certainty arises, it means that you explore and examine and test and work things out. And because in the last 300 years, particularly in Western culture, uh, there have been great questions raised about the veracity and validity of the Bible and of Jesus and all that sort of thing, well then, as a result, a huge amount of work has gone into all this. Now, the question of certainty is a tricky one. What are we certain of? Uh, I suppose you can be certain in, in some areas, at least, of mathematics. Uh, but that certainty there is a sort of a, a given certainty. Because of certain assumptions that you make in advance, then there could be certainty coming out the other end based on those axioms. On the other hand, in real life, it's very hard to be certain of anything. And I've always assumed that we can hardly be certain of the existence of other people, for example. So I could be, I think I'm here speaking to you now, but I could be dreaming that I'm here speaking to you now. Uh, some of you look quite dreamy, if I can put it like that. Uh, please don't get to sleep yet. Uh, the existence of other people outside myself, if you really, really, really pushed me to explain, could I prove that other people existed, uh, I might find that a bit hard to do. I guess that some people might be able to prove it, I don't know. So when you're asked for certainty in the area of historical probabilities and so forth, well, no, uh, I guess... We can't be certain he existed. We can't be certain that his name was Jesus. We can't be certain that he was a Jewish. We can't be certain he was crucified, if you want to say that. But then you can't be certain of anything. So that's a silly test to raise. When you're dealing with someone like Jesus Christ, you deal with him historically. And the same ideas that you might deal with in a historical phenomenon, so you deal with Jesus. And I believe that uh, raises then uh, quite a different way of looking at him and a, and a great deal of historical certitude about the fact that, yes, there was a man called Jesus. Yes, people did believe that he was the Christ, Jesus the Christ, from a very early stage. Yes, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate, as the Bible reveals. Uh, yes, he was young, almost certainly. Uh, yes, he was a Jew. And yes, there are a number of other things, quite a number of other things you could say about him, 
without necessarily even believing that the New Testament is the inspired and infallible Word of God, which I do. But uh, leaving it merely as a historical question, I believe we could say a great deal about him. Well, that said, what do we make of him? He lived, he's part of our stream of history, he's had a big impact undoubtedly in the, uh, in the world, uh, not just the Western world, he's had a huge impact in the world as a whole, he's one of, uh, on any grounds, he's one of the first top two or three people, shall we say. I'd probably say the first, but he's definitely one of the top two or three people uh, known, whose name is known throughout the world. Uh, so we're not dealing here with an un, unimportant, insignificant person. We're dealing with a person about whom you should have opinions. I mean, many people live life without having an opinion about this, that and the other. They're called wet. Uh, it's far better that you actually support a club and really live and die for your club. There's a bit of passion involved here. If you want to be a human, you should be involved to have a bit of passion in your life and you should be passionate about the Jesus question. Pro or con, for or against, be passionate about it. Have a view of Jesus. If I'm right, he's going to have a view of you. Don't worry. So you may as well start now and have a view of him. If I'm wrong, of course, well, there we go. Now, first of all, was he a false prophet? Was he a false prophet? Well, was he a prophet at all? Uh, I guess the word prophet, I'm saying P-R-O-P-H-E-T, not F-I-T. There are some commerce people here today, I believe. Uh, okay. Uh, the idea of a prophet is the idea of the seer, someone who can have visions of the future. And I suppose at one level, uh, there are prophets in the world, and always have been prophets in the world, who claim to have prevision of what's to come. The prophets of the Bible are not quite in that category. Uh, sure, they would say that God revealed to them certain things that were to come, but the way in which the prophets worked was rather by looking backwards first, if I can put it like that. They'd look backwards to the days of Moses, for example, way back in about 1200 BC, and they'd read the writings of Moses, the first five books of the Bible, and they'd see the promises of God in the writings of Moses, and they'd say, well, those promises of God, because God is a true God, are bound to come true. And so they would take the promises of God, all promises are forward-looking, aren't they? You can't have a promise looking backwards. All promises of God, all promises look forward, and the promises of God are a pretty good God of the future because he's God. So the promises of God looking forward, and then think about those promises of God, and then they'd use them like a, a, an artist may use some paint, and they'd paint the future. And the real aim for painting the future was to tell you what to do in the present. It's really interesting. You've brought together the past, the future, and the present. When a prophet speaks, he's not so much like someone who, uh, uh, you know, am I going to meet someone who I'll really fall in love with in the next year, that sort of stuff. Uh, if you want that sort of stuff, come and see me afterwards because I charge $10 a time for that. Uh, that. That's not the sort of prophets we're talking about here. We're talking about men and women, who, having studied the writings of God and the promises of God, <laughs> under God's inspiration, thought about the future in order to apply it to the present. That was the idea of prophecy in the Bible. Well, was Jesus that sort of prophet? 
The answer to that is clearly yes. Uh, he took from the promises. If there's one thing we know about Jesus, it is, I think we know many things about Jesus, but one thing is perfectly clear about Jesus is that he was a man of the book. That is to say, he was a man of the Bible. He read, understood, believed, and obeyed the Bible. Uh, and uh, that was the Bible as he had it in those days, 39 books to that point, 66 in the end, but 39 books up to his point, and he read and understood and applied the Bible. Okay, when he looked at his Bible, he saw that there were the promises of God which could be more or less summed up in a big promise, namely, uh, the best phrase for it is the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God. Uh, there are many ways in which the prophets speak of this, but the prophets were saying that we're in a historical continuum. In the, in the Bible, there's no sense of history going round and round in circles or anything like that. There's no idea of the transmigration of souls or anything like that in the Bible. Now, that's all not true according to the Bible. Thank goodness, who'd want to live in a world like that? Uh, the Bible has a straight line view of history. It begins with creation and it's going to the kingdom of God, the new creation. In between those two great points, there is the fall of human beings, where human beings rebel against their maker and creator and uh, get themselves into the sort of troubled world which we find ourselves in today. But out of that trouble, out of that pain and suffering and sinfulness and rebellion comes the great hopes that one day God would come, set the whole thing straight, start again with a new creation, a new heavens and a new earth, which would be just and righteous. There'd be no more tears, no more crying, no more pain and suffering. They were the great hopes for the coming of the kingdom of God. It would come through the crucible of God's judgment. It's no good thinking God's just going to let the world somehow transform into a good time coming. No, no, no. There's a coming day of judgment, said the prophets. The day of the Lord, they called it. When God would introduce his kingdom, the word kingdom there means reign or rule, God would introduce his kingdom into the world and then the world would take an immense turn for the better. It's good to be on the right side of God, if I can put it like that, when that happens, obviously. And that's what the prophets were telling people. But that was their hope for the future. Now, what did Jesus say? Jesus read his Bible. Jesus studied the Bible. Jesus knew what the Bible said. And when he started preaching, as recorded in Mark chapter 1, verse 15, and uh, again, this is... Uh, you don't have to believe in the Bible to believe that he said this because it so clearly was the message of Jesus repeated so many times. He says, the time has come. The kingdom of God is near. Agnidze, it's near. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe in this gospel or in the gospel. So was he a prophet? Yes. He prophesied the coming of the kingdom of God. He said, furthermore, that it was close, near, at hand. He prophesied the end of the world. He was like one of those chaps walking around with a big sign back in front saying, the end is at hand, the end is at hand. And in the back he says, repent and believe the gospel. Get ready for the end. Jesus the sandwich board man, so to speak, if I can put it like that. So there we are. He was a prophet. He said that the time was virtually on you. When God would save his people, God would save his people, and judge the world, and bring in a new age. Uh, by the way, what did he say about the present? Because remember, prophets take from the past, portray the future, in order to tell you what to do now. That's what prophets do. 
on the whole. I'm generalizing here, you realize there are many variations, but nonetheless, that's what it is. Well, what did Jesus say about the here and now? Well, you've heard already. He says, the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the God. In, in other words, get ready for it. Instead of rebelling against God, instead of your life going your way, instead of it you being in charge of your life, put yourself under God's charge. Put yourself under the rule of God now. That's what repent means. Turn away from living for yourself and start living for God. Repent and believe the gospel. The gospel is the news that the kingdom of God is at hand. Believe that the kingdom of God is right on you and take appropriate action. Put yourself under the rule of God now because now's the time to get on the right side of God before the day of judgment comes. That was his message. Uh, by the way, what I'm asking is, was he a failed prophet? And I'm hoping, particularly if you're a Christian, you're getting a little anxious. Uh, you may have noticed that the kingdom of God, which he said was near, he gave that announcement 2,000 years ago. Now, I don't know what you think near might mean there. Maybe uh, 20 years? You'd think maybe 20 months. It could be 20 minutes. But 200 years, you might... But we're talking 2,000 years. And in the same Bible that Jesus was reading, it says in the book of Deuteronomy that one of the ways you know a true prophet from a false prophet is if the prophet's predictions about the future come true. Now, you can give a fair bit of leeway here, particularly if the prophet tells you uh, in 15,000 years something's going to happen. You can say, well, we're waiting to see if it's true or not. But when someone says the kingdom of God is near at hand and it doesn't happen, then you have to ask yourself, was he a failed prophet? And if a failed prophet, was he a false prophet? In which case, end of story. And time to go home. Join another society. Do something with your life. I believe the Pigeon Fanciers Club is just about to begin. Perhaps you'd ought to go down that track. Okay. Now, you will not be surprised to learn that people have noticed this problem before. You are not the first person to have thought of this. I'm not the first person to have thought that there may be a problem. In the European Enlightenment, hoping there's some answering corresponding thought pattern going on there, that's good. The European Enlightenment, that period of European history, in France, Germany, uh, England, Scotland, that period, and Ireland even, uh, that period of European and indeed American history in which people started to really, really question the authority of the church and the authority of the Bible in the name of human reason. In the period of the human, of the European enlightenment, these questions certainly came strongly to the fore. People said, well, how come if he said the kingdom of God was near, it hasn't come? By the by, you'll also read in the Bible the kingdom of heaven, but it's exactly the same idea. Heaven there is just a euphemism for God, so you didn't use the name of God too quickly. Okay? So kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God, same thing. That's a footnote. Okay. So people noticed this, and particularly it became a point of issue two or three hundred years ago, and subsequently, of course, in the age of the Enlightenment. 
Now, at that point, a number of people simply gave up on Jesus. They became unbelievers in Jesus because he was a failed prophet and therefore a false prophet. The difficulty with taking that line is that Jesus, on any account, is so impressive. Because it wasn't just that he said the kingdom of God is near. He said an awful lot of other things, and he did a lot of other things too, that were very, very impressive indeed. And in fact, it is no accident that his name has come down to us right through history. And it's no accident that people all around the world have worshipped him. And it's no accident that even as we speak, there are thousands of people daily becoming Christians. That is to say, committing themselves to this man. It's no accident because if you read his life story, if you hear what he said, if you see what he did, it's immensely impressive. So it's all very well to say he was a failed prophet and a false prophet, but it's still hard to categorize him. For if he was a failed and a false prophet, how come his words have such power as they do? They have an extraordinary, he shows an extraordinary insight, an extraordinary insight and range. I'm uh, quite interested in public speaking, uh, just a minor interest of mine, I guess, uh, both doing it, watching it, listening to it, etc., etc. Uh, I remember we had the first wedding in our family. Uh, my eldest son got, son got married, and after the wedding was all over, we sat in the kitchen with another prospective son-in-law, by the way. And uh, what did we talk about? We talked about the speeches at the wedding. And our prospective son-in-law said it was the only family he could imagine the entire world that would talk after the wedding was over about the speeches, which he thought were fairly monumentally boring. And pretty typical wedding speeches at that. But I am interested in speeches and speech-making. So I've got some books at home with great speeches. And I, when I go to a bookshop, I look up and see books on great speeches. I don't always buy them. Now, apart from the book on great Australian speeches, which is fairly light, um, <laughs> largely seems to be made up of friends of Mr. Keating or something like this, and after all, did he write his own? Um, if you look up a, a, a book of great speeches, almost invariably, you'll find from Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount. Right up there with the Gettysburg Address and Winston Churchill's orations and all the other great speeches from antiquity, speeches of Cicero, right down through the ages, you will find the Sermon on the Mount. Because, uh, and if you want to read the Sermon on the Mount, not quite sure where it is, get your Bible. It's, Ma it's Matthew's Gospel. It, takes, it turns up in Luke too, but Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5, 6, and 7. Uh, this morning, as I was thinking of coming here, I just thought I'd read it again. And it, it's pretty amazing stuff. It's, it's short for a start. No speech of mine is ever that short. Uh, but there's not a word wasted. And he goes right to the heart, right to the heart of the matter and right to your heart. And he says things that the minute you see them, you say, yeah, that's true. It's obviously so. Uh, he says, uh, you've read in the law, you shall not commit murder, I say to you, you will not hate someone. He goes to the heart of the matter. He goes straight to the heart. He says, judge not that you be not judged. The judgment you give will be the judgment you get. Yeah, it goes straight to the heart of the matter. Jesus said, uh, 
when you give money away, do it secretly. If you're really sincere, in other words, if you really want to do the will of God, rather than doing it in order that other people will look at you, give it secretly. That was a new thought. And to some people, it's still a new thought. They make sure you that you know that they've given their money. Again and again, Jesus said things that were extraordinarily powerful and in fact, in fact, have shaped our modern world. Many times people quote Jesus these days without even realizing they're quoting Jesus. His language has entered into the language, well, not just the English language, but the French and the German and the, the, the languages of the world. In fact, it's no accident that it has because many, many languages in the world, the first book translated and the first readers of that book is the Bible and the Christians. So the words of Jesus have entered into the language, hundreds of languages around the world because of the power of what he said and the insight with which he said it. You see, if he wasn't going to be a prophet, the uh, Europeans thought, well, perhaps we ought to treat him as a genius. It's not so much that he was a prophet of the Lord. Obviously, that didn't work so well. But after all, he is a religious genius. He's a sort of, uh, he's the sort of Shakespeare of religion. He's the Don Bradman of Christianity. Don Bradman? Yeah. Uh, I'm going to say far that next. I don't think that's right for this age group. I wish I could think of something. Anyway, we won't go to all that. Okay. He is the top player of religion. Want to know about religion? He's the genius of religion. He'll tell you how to be religious, if you're interested. He'll tell you how to live well. And you know, that's true. He is like that. He is extraordinary. He is insightful. His words have a power. Even if, even if the only thing we had from Jesus was the parable of the Good Samaritan. Do you remember that one where the man goes down and is beaten up and is lying beside the road and the, and the priest walks by and ignores him and the Levite walks by and ignores him and then along comes the Samaritan who doesn't like the Jews and the Samaritans didn't like each other in those days and the Samaritan seeing there takes pity on him and binds him up and takes him to the inn and makes sure he has enough money and comes back the next day. If that's all we had from Jesus, that would be enough to establish his reputation. It's interesting, actually, I don't know if there are any law students here. I suppose they're out making money. But um, I was a law student once, and again, and then they kicked me out of the course. Um, I failed law one twice. But then I enrolled in English one and failed that as well. And... That's when the University of Sydney excluded me. I had my revenge later. I used to lecture to um, <laughs> I don't think they knew. Anyhow, when I did law one, I came across the snail in the bottle case. Any lawyers here? Snail in the bottle case? Uh, and you may have studied it at school even, because it comes up there. The snail in the bottle case is the, uh, is the case of the lady who was drinking a, back in the 1920s, drinking a... a, a a glass of uh, some soft drink and discovered in the bottom of the bottle a decomposed snail. She was distressed by this. 
And a case was entered into in her account. I think if memory served me, it's called Rylands and Fletcher. Where's my lawyer? Yes. You can't. Have you done torts yet? Oh, Donahue and Stevenson. Rylands and Fletcher is another one. Donahue and Stevenson. Thank you so much. That was just a check to see if she was awake. Okay. <laughs> Donahue and Stevenson. And uh, it was discovered that uh, the question was, was the bottler negligent? It may sound obvious to you that the bottler was negligent, but it wasn't obvious according to the law then. Anyhow, the case was found that the bottler was negligent. The lady died before the case was decided and she never benefited from it. No, she didn't die of snail disease. It's okay. <laughs> it was exactly snail aside she died of. Anyhow, be that as it may, uh, the judge in the case, in considering whether... Now, from that case, Donahue and Stevenson, why is it so famous? 1920s, why is it so famous? Because the whole law of negligence, including motor car accidents and everything like that, huge body of common law in England, America, Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, a huge body of law swung on that particular case. And interestingly, the judge quoted Sermon on the Mount. I, I beg your pardon, the Good Samaritan, parable of the Good Samaritan. Who is my neighbor? If Jesus had just told that parable, and that's all, his fame would be established. But that's only a minor thing compared to the great other things that he did. Uh, the, um, his death and the way in which he died has inspired millions. This very day, people die in his name and they die with forgiveness on their lips for those who are putting them to death. Because Jesus forgave those who were putting him. It's rightly been said that Socrates died like a philosopher and Jesus died like a god. Oops. Leads me to the next point, really. The difficulty with thinking of him as a religious genius, it's all very well to think that he was such a great religious genius. But, you know, if you were a religious genius, you would point to God, wouldn't you? You'd point away from yourself. You wouldn't make yourself the center. You'd make God the center. You'd say to your disciples, worship God. The difficulty with the idea that Jesus is simply a religious genius is that he invited people to serve him and in the end to worship him. For such a religious genius to make himself the center of worship so that in the end he said, look, uh, my words will determine your fate. You're building a house on sand or you're building a house on, on, on uh, stone, on good foundation. The answer is, if you're building your life on my words, your life will stand on the day of judgment. If you're building a life on your own words and your own theories or the theories of some other human being, your life will collapse like a pack of cards on the day of judgment. That's a pretty grandiose claim, and a pretty grandiose claim for a religious genius to make. If he's such a genius, why didn't he recognize that God is God and he is human being like the rest of us? Why is it that he got his disciples to pray for forgiveness, but he never asked for forgiveness for himself? Why is it that he persuaded them that he didn't need to ask for forgiveness? Because the life he lived, Contrary to every other human life that's ever been, it was without sin. How come his close associates said that? How come? How 
come he could heal? How come he could still the storm? How come? It's not the actions of a mere religious genius. But that brings us back to the other problem. If he was such a jolly good prophet, if he was so excellent, if he was such a genius at telling us things, how come his prophecy failed? The kingdom of God is at hand, and there is no kingdom of God. Well, that's a tough call. Why have I put myself in this hole? Is it possible to dig out? Well, I'll, I'll make a couple of suggestions for you to think about. No, the, the end of the world didn't come. I've noticed that. You've noticed it. But I'll tell you what did come, and what came immediately after the days of Jesus. I'll tell you what did come. And that was... and. This is an undeniable, indisputable, contemporary with us, historical fact. The kingdom of Jesus came. For since, and you can trace it all the way back to his life itself, using historical methods, since the days of Jesus there have always been in the world people who have worshipped him people who have served him, people who have obeyed him, people who have trusted him, people who have died for him, people who have done something even more difficult. They've lived for him. There's been let loose in the world a kingdom of Jesus. Central to this has been his death without a doubt. Wherever the kingdom of Jesus has gone, so has the cross gone. The cross of Jesus, the death of Jesus, is the central fact of Christianity. Not because of he was a martyr. We don't think of him as a martyr, but we rather think of him as the one to whom the martyrs bear witness. We don't think of his death as a sort of a cruel injustice and therefore we're going to be sorry about it all the time. We're not carrying that burden around with us. It's not as though, oh, it was an awful thing to do and I was part of it. We're not carrying that burden around with us, although there's truth in it. It's not as though, oh, he was put to death and that shows how God sort of suffers as well, though that's true too. But we're saying, no, he was put to death. And through his death, we see the day of the Lord, the day of judgment. The day of judgment began, shall I say, with the death of Jesus. Because Jesus stood totally innocent and yet treated as guilty for you and for me. It wasn't so much of what Jesus said, you see, that matters. It's what Jesus did that matters. And what did he do? He suffered himself the adverse judgment that you deserve, that I deserve. We see here the day of judgment. Oh, not the final day of judgment, that is still to come. But we see here the day of judgment when God himself takes the judgment on himself so that you may be forgiven. The kingdom of Jesus is based on the cross of Jesus and the forgiveness from God that that has let loose into the world. And furthermore, of course, the death of Jesus was followed by the resurrection of Jesus. Not that he was resurrected because he was God, 
God doesn't need to be resurrected, actually. He's always been alive. He was resurrected because he was one of us and God. He was both truly man and God, you see. And as man, he was resurrected to show what will happen to you too. His resurrection is God saying over him, yes, and therefore God saying over you, yes, if you too are in the kingdom of Jesus. What I'm saying clearly, I hope, is when he said the kingdom of God was near, he was absolutely right. For the kingdom of God came in and through the kingdom of Jesus with his death and resurrection. It was so near it was two years away or three years away or two months away as he kept preaching. It occurred at the end of his own lifetime. The kingdom of God came thrusting and bursting and powering into the world and the world has never been the same again. You see when I said that it's an indisputable fact. It's an irrefutable fact that there is and always has been since then the kingdom of Jesus in the world. You may not like it. You may say you don't want him. You may say, I don't like the look of this one. You may say, I don't want to be in it. I'd rather be my own kingdom. Thanks very much. You, you may say all sorts of things, but you can't deny that the kingdom of Jesus is in the world and therefore, in the terms in which Jesus put it, the kingdom of God is in the world. He was not a failed prophet. His prophecy has been vindicated and has come true. The kingdom of God has come. Salvation has come to God's people, which is what the kingdom of God was going to bring in. Salvation and judgment and the Holy Spirit have entered the world. Of course, the kingdom of God has come in two stages. That which has come, the decisive moment, and that which is yet to come. And the whole thing is wrapped up. The fact that it has entered the world in two stages does not, of course, contradict the promises, but rather is a confirmation of the promises of God. Jesus the Christ is here. God's kingdom is in the world, traveling inside history. It's the secret of history and it's the destination of history. It is here with us now and it is the meaning of the end of history. And the question for you now is... Are you in it or out of it? Are you in the kingdom or out of the kingdom? Are you a follower of Jesus Christ? Is he your king and lord, your Christ, your Messiah? Or do you reject him? You must take sides. You must be passionate about it, one way or the other. For his kingdom confronts you and confronts us all. Was he a failed prophet? No one. He was a true prophet. His words came amazingly true. Was he a religious genius? Yes, but he was more than just a mere religious genius. He was actually God himself come among us. That's why he spoke the way he did. God himself come among us. Can you enter the kingdom? Yes, you can. Is it good advice? I reckon it is, because the kingdom still will come. And the day of judgment lies before us. Now, it's always a good thing to finish at 10, 10 to 2 so that you can scurry off to study Donahue and Stevenson or whatever it is that you're committed to this afternoon, full of excitement and so forth. It's not quite 10 to 2 yet. We've got three minutes. Are there any questions? I didn't say this would happen because I didn't want to make a false promise.
But since we've arrived at this point, if there are any questions anyone wants to ask, now's a good time to ask. I do take your point. I don't think I agree with that, but I do take it. It's always possible. It's an excellent question, well worth digging around and finding out. Uh, my problem with it, interestingly too, uh, just to add further to what you're saying there, at one stage when Jesus was asked, where is this kingdom? He said, the kingdom is in the midst of you. Now that's often translated, the kingdom is inside you. That's not, it's not personal. It's plural. That means many. Okay. Uh, never tell. Uh, the kingdom is in the midst of you. Now, uh, I take it what he meant was that the kingdom, because he himself is the son of God and stood in their midst, then the kingdom of God was in the midst of them. My difficulty with what you're proposing, though I encourage you to, you know, send it out. That's why I've mentioned them to you. Yeah, to offer you some further encouragement. Uh, my difficulty with what you're suggesting, however, is the way in which I think the Bible does deal with this linear view of history and the idea of the age in which we're living and the age that is to come. And I think that linear view of history would tell against uh, the suggestion you're making. But that's a, a discussion that uh, is well worth having. Well, it is, you see, because uh, that then raises the question of who is Jesus Christ. If Jesus Christ is merely man, like I am, then his his kingdom failed. There was no, his, his kingdom came, but it wasn't the kingdom of God. The question is, who is Jesus Christ? If you believe, as I do, that he is in fact God in our midst, then the kingdom of God did come. If he wasn't, then the kingdom of God didn't come. But you can't say that he's... Well, it's already here. You can't say that his kingdom has failed because... Uh, you, sorry, you can't say that he's automatically a false prophet because, after all, a kingdom did come. Now, whose kingdom is it, is the question I'd, I'd ask. Um, there are people anxious to go. One more. Yes. Yeah, yeah, Ponza. Ah, oh, well, uh, by all means, go ahead and do that. Uh, the moment will come, however, when that option is going to be well and truly closed off, and you will find that it would have been better to take sides now. Uh, the steps that you need to take to get there are the sort of things I've begun to suggest today, and I invite you, and I don't know where you're coming from in the list, that these are fair questions, but I, I would invite anyone who wishes to do that to begin with the New Testament and read the New Testament, Luke's Gospel and John's Gospel together, I think would be a good place to begin. Friends, uh, thank you for those questions. Uh, they're terrific. Uh, we'll pause at this point. Uh, farewell till I'm asked again. If I'm asked again.